I do want to take just a moment. Uh, I want to share the word of God with you this evening. You know, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I would feel very uh, strange and awkward if I didn't take this opportunity to build your faith this evening on this great day, this day of all days, this Resurrection Sunday. And so before we get to the baptisms, uh, I want to examine the scriptures this evening. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to John chapter 20, John chapter 20 uh, tonight. And we're going to look at the first 10 verses from John chapter 20. There's four gospels. They all attest to the fact that Jesus on that third day after he was crucified, he rose again. And we're going to look at John's account here this evening. In verse one, it says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. That other disciple is, is John. And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And when he saw, he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that it is your word. Lord, I pray that as we examine this account tonight and the account of the resurrection, uh, that your word would prove to be uh, fruitful in our lives. And Lord, that you would build our faith. Lord, I thank you that our faith is not a blind faith, but Lord, it's a faith based on evidence and historical fact and logic and reason. And you don't cause us, you don't ask us, God, to, to, to dispel with logic and reason when we come to you in faith. But Lord, it's because you've given us a mind to think. You've, you've given us the laws of logic and reason that we can even understand the words that we are reading tonight. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move on all of our hearts as we examine the evidence for the resurrection, and Lord, that you would dispense with faith, and that you would give faith, and that you would build our faith, because faith is a gift from you, and we thank you for it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you here tonight may be like John, the writer of this gospel. I think it's funny that John puts in there that he beat Peter to the tomb. I think that's cute. Uh, Peter was older than John, we know that. Uh, John was the youngest uh, disciple, probably a teenager by all accounts. Uh, Peter was an older man at this time. He was married. He probably had dad bod. And so uh, John beats him to the tomb easily. 
Uh, Peter gets there and huffing and puffing, he goes into the tomb and then John follows him in behind. And maybe you are like John. You know, it says when John saw the evidence, he examined it and he believed. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer in Christ. You've examined the evidence. You've, you've heard the gospel message. You've, you've, you've looked at it and you've said, I believe this. I believe in Christ. And I pray that you are. But maybe some of you here tonight are like Peter. It says when he went in, he did not understand. It was John who believed. But, but later after Jesus appeared to Peter, of course we know that Peter came to faith as well. And so maybe you're here and, and you haven't yet processed it. You haven't yet given the evidence for the resurrection a thorough examination. Maybe you're here tonight because celebrating Easter is just part of what our culture does. We live in San Antonio, Texas, and it's the springtime, and that's what we do. We have fiesta, we have battle of the flowers, and we have Easter, and we go to church on Easter. Maybe it's just part of our San Antonio culture. Maybe you're here because it's a family thing. Your, your family convinced you to go. Maybe it's a family tradition that, that you are observing today. Maybe your parents and grandparents believed in Christ, but you, maybe the jury's out. Do you believe in it for yourself? I want to impress upon you tonight that there is more here than simply a cultural holiday. There is more here than just a family tradition. There's actually something here to believe in. There's actually something here that has the power to totally and radically, completely and forever change your entire life. And so you might say, well, how can you know that he rose from the dead? How can you be sure he rose from the dead? You weren't there. You didn't see it with your own eyes. You're not an eyewitness. And if you're right, I wasn't there. I wasn't at the tomb that day. I didn't examine the physical evidence for myself. So how can we be sure that, that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I would submit to you that we can be as sure of this fact of history as we can be of any other historical fact by examining the evidence. There's, there's many other historical events that we, we take on face value after we examine the evidence, and I would submit to you that we should do the same for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can you be sure that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Were you there? Did you see it? Did you see him sworn in? How do you know? How can you be sure? How do you know that Julius Caesar was one of the Roman emperors? Were you there? Did you see it? Or that Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation? Or any other fact of history? How do we know that these things actually happened? We examine the evidence. We examine credible sources that bear witness to the fact. Eyewitnesses who were there, who, who wrote it down for us. None of us here tonight questions the fact that George Washington was the first president under the Constitution or that Julius Caesar was a Roman emperor or that Abraham Lincoln signed the, the Emancipation Proclamation. We know these things to be true. And in the same way, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. It is a fact of history. In fact, uh, one of the, a great historian, Michael Grant, he explains it this way. He says that credible historians, quote, 
cannot justifiably deny the empty tomb since normal historical criteria attests that the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed empty and found empty on that day, close quote. Historians cannot and do not negate the fact of the empty tomb. The empty tomb is historical fact. And no credible historian would argue to the contrary. So the great question is, what are you going to do with that? Why was the tomb empty? That's the great question. On the third day, the tomb was empty. Why was it empty? And right now, as we're going to examine some of the evidence, I call on you as an image bearer of God. Someone who's been given a mind, someone who's been given conscience, someone who's been given agency, someone who's, who's endowed by his creator with logic and reason to examine the evidence. I believe that the evidence for the resurrection, the fact that, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, I believe it is conclusive and exhaustive and enough to produce faith in our hearts. So let's examine the evidence briefly tonight. The biblical evidence for the resurrection. The Bible tells us that Jesus' death and resurrection was prophesied in advance. Well before Jesus ever lived, well before he was born and laid in a manger, well before the angels sang glory to God in the highest peace on earth, well before he, he lived his life, well before he died on that cross, his death was prophesied. In Psalm 16, David writes for us the account of the resurrection. Peter preached from Psalm chapter 16 on the day of Pentecost. In Psalm 22, the crucifixion was described in graphic detail. Again, David being moved by the Holy Spirit. A thousand years before Christ, the death and resurrection predicted it wasn't only David, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before Christ, predicts the same thing, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So the first evidence that we see for the resurrection is that it was prophesied in advance. The Messiah would die and rise again from the dead. The second evidence that we have in the Bible is that Jesus himself predicted his resurrection on multiple occasions. On multiple occasions, Jesus said, I am going to die and rise from the dead. Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. Now, it's a very uh, uh, incredible thing to predict your own death. That's amazing. But we could fudge the details on that. We could, we could predict our own death and then arrange events to make it happen, but to predict your own resurrection, that's an altogether different thing. Jesus himself said, I will die and rise again. In Matthew chapter 16, it tells us that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He knew where he was going to die and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He knew who was going to hand him over to be killed and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
The third evidence for Jesus' resurrection is that he died. The Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, executed by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. That when they asked to take the body of Jesus, uh, Pilate was, was shocked that Jesus had died so quickly. And so they thrust a spear into his side, puncturing his heart, a Roman spear through the heart of Christ to make sure that in fact he had died. Jesus died. He, he didn't just pass out. He wasn't just taking a nap. He really physically died. And in fact, again, this was not a mistake. This wasn't an accident. This was according to God's eternal plan that he had been predicting all along. Number four, Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find. He was buried in a tomb that was easy to find. He was buried in the tomb of a very prominent man in Jerusalem, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph sat on the highest court in the land, the Sanhedrin, who would be like our Supreme Court, made up of 70 elders of the Jews. Everybody knew who Joseph of Arimathea was. He took the body of Christ. He laid Jesus in his own tomb that he had prepared for himself and his family. Eyewitnesses saw the tomb that he was laid in. He was buried in a tomb that was easy to find, was well marked out. They placed Roman guards in front of that tomb and sealed it with a seal. They knew what tomb to go to on that Easter Sunday morning. Number five, Jesus appeared physically alive three days after his death. If you keep reading the account in John, he appears first to Mary Magdalene. He appears to his disciples after that. He invites them to touch his hands and and to put their hands in his side. He appears physically to them after his death. Number six, the resurrected body was the same body that had been crucified. Jesus wasn't raised spiritually, whatever that means. It wasn't a ghost that they saw, some sort of spiritual vision. They saw the resurrected body of Jesus. He was resurrected in the same body that he had died in. Mary recognizes Jesus by the sound of his voice. The disciples recognize Jesus by the, the scars in his hands and feet and side. Jesus appears to them and he says that he is hungry and so they give him something to eat. Jesus was resurrected bodily from the grave. Number seven, Jesus' resurrection was recorded in Scripture shortly after it occurred. Shortly after it occurred. The Gospel of Mark was written in the mid to late 50s. That's a mere 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. And some, there is some evidence that says that Mark's Gospel was written as early as 37 A.D., just a mere four years after the resurrection. The gospel accounts were not written hundreds of years, centuries after Jesus rose. No, these accounts were written by the eyewitnesses that saw them themselves shortly after these events occurred. With eyewitnesses who were still alive who could go and verify the facts. The resurrection of Christ is not a myth, a legend that developed centuries later. 
historical record bears for us that the believers of Jesus from the first century on believed that he rose bodily from the dead. Number eight, Jesus' resurrection convinced his family to worship him as God. That's pretty impressive. Those of you who have brothers and sisters, what would it take for you to worship them as the creator of the universe? It'd be easier for you to convince them that you were the devil than it was for you to convince them that you were God. You could probably convince them of that. Jesus' own family, his brothers, were unbelievers before the resurrection. They did not believe in Christ. In fact, before the resurrection, they thought he had lost his mind and were embarrassing the family. And so they tried to go and take him and bring him back home because he was kind of embarrassing everybody, you know, saying things like, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Savior of the world, you must believe in me to be forgiven of your sins. They, they thought he had lost his mind. Just like you would think that anybody else had lost their mind if they started saying those things. But yet, after the resurrection, they changed their tune. But yet, after they see Jesus risen from the dead, the one that was crucified, alive, victorious, they realize who he was. Even Mary, his own mother, worships her son as the creator of the universe. Number nine, Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by his most bitter enemies, such as Saul of Tarsus, who later became known as the Apostle Paul. Without the resurrection, there is no explanation for the transformation of Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. How does one go from being a persecutor of the church to be a church planter? How does one go from, from trying to hunt and murder Christians to spending the rest of his life spreading the gospel and converting people to Christ. The only explanation is that on that Damascus road that Paul the apostle saw Jesus risen from the dead. Now this is just some of the biblical evidence. I want to move on to circumstantial evidence. Evidence from, from circumstance. And so our 10th evidence tonight is that Jesus' disciples after the resurrection were transformed men. They were transformed. Something changed them. Something happened inside of them. Prior to the resurrection, they were cowards. Prior to the resurrection, when Jesus was arrested, they all fled for their lives. Prior to the resurrection, Peter the most outspoken disciple who said, even if I have to die for you, I will never deny you. That same Peter denied Jesus three times when questioned by a little girl. But yet, just 50 days later, that same Peter stands up in the same city where Jesus was crucified and to the same mob that had shouted, crucify him, crucify him, Peter preaches the same Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead and has seated him at the right hand of God the Father. And he calls on that whole crowd to repent of their sin and trust in Christ as the resurrected King and Lord and Savior and Messiah. How do you account for the transformation? 
before the resurrection, they're, they're behind closed doors. They're, they're, they're behind locked doors. They're, they're hiding away. They're huddling away in fear for their lives. But after the resurrection, they go from being timid and afraid to being bold for Christ. How do you account for the transformation? They saw Jesus risen from the dead. They knew what they saw with their own eyes and they were completely and totally convinced and this changed them forever. In fact, all of the apostles except for John, the beloved who writes John's gospel, all of them, church history tells us, died a martyr's death for preaching the resurrection. It was the resurrection that they preached and all of them died for it. None of them changed their story. None of them said, you know what, actually we made it all up. They knew that Jesus was alive just as much as they knew anything. And they knew that the one that they believed in and the one that they preached was the one who himself had even conquered death. And so even in the face of death, they are not afraid because they know that as soon as they die, they get to go and be with Jesus. The fear of death totally removed. Simon Peter was crucified upside down. These people died brutal deaths. Andrew crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, beheaded by sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. Philip hung upside down with iron hooks through his ankles and beaten. Bartholomew crucified, Thomas stabbed with a, a spear, Matthew stabbed in the back, Thaddeus crucified, Simon the Zealot crucified, James the brother of Jesus was thrown off the top of the temple because he wouldn't stop preaching the resurrection that his brother had risen and conquered death and was the Messiah. But when that didn't kill him, when they threw him off the temple mount and it didn't kill him, he got on his knees and began praying for those who had thrown him off the top of the temple. And because it didn't kill him, they stoned him to death as he prayed for their salvation. John, the last apostle to die, he died of old age, but not before they tried to kill him by boiling him alive in oil. When he miraculously survived, they exiled him to the island of Patmos where he had his revelation, his apocalypse, his vision of Jesus. The disciples were changed men. There's no way to account for the, the, the resurrection, the, the, the change that happened in them without the resurrection. Number 11, worship changed. Worship changed. The day of worship changed had, had typically be, been the seventh day, the Sabbath day. God's people historically had gathered for worship on the seventh day, but very quickly God's people begin to gather for worship on the first day of the week. Why? Because the first day of the week was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the day of worship changes, but not only the day, but the object of worship changes as people begin to worship Jesus as the Son of God. Now, you have to understand that no devout Jew who for centuries of his family history had worshipped the one true creator God would ever 
changed the object of worship, but it did not change. It came into greater focus through the person of Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. So worship has changed. Number 12, I think this is one of the most convincing evidences in the gospel accounts, is who it is that discovers the empty tomb. It is women who discover the empty tomb. It is a group of women who go to anoint the body of Jesus. He was buried quickly and didn't have time for a proper burial. And so they were going to anoint his body, a Jewish culture, a cultural custom. And so it was women who first discovered the empty tomb. And that account is, is recorded for us in the Gospels. But what you have to understand is that in the first century, Jewish culture... Women in the Jewish culture were looked down upon and even despised. There was such a high degree of a lack of respect for women that it is absolutely beyond belief that the apostles would make this up and credit women as the chief witnesses of the resurrection. In fact, even in the first century, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. And so the point being is if this was a made-up story... You wouldn't make it up that Mary Magdalene was the one who discovered the empty tomb. A woman who at one point had been filled with seven demons. She wasn't a very credible witness. Yet this is who Jesus chose to appear to at first. Women discovered the empty tomb. Number 13, the early church preaching was based on the empty tomb. They started their preaching ministry in Jerusalem, the city where Jesus died and was buried. On that day of Pentecost, just 50 days after Jesus rose, they didn't have to convince anybody that the tomb was empty. They could point to it. His tomb is empty. They were in the city where Jesus died. It was a widely known and accepted fact that the tomb was empty. And number 14 Christianity has exploded. The, the church of Jesus has, has, is conquering the globe today. There was two other men who died on that cross next to Jesus. Nobody knows their names. Nobody knows who they were. Why? Because they're still dead and buried in their grave. But literally, almost all the world knows the name of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no explanation for his church. Every force of man and hell has tried to stop it, but none have succeeded because the power of the resurrection is alive and at work in his believers. The power of the resurrection, Jesus calling people from death to life, forgiving their sins, transforming their lives. Jesus is still saving people today. The church is one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection. Now these facts are clear and there's many more that we could go into tonight. But these are sufficient this is the historical evidence, the biblical evidence. They point us to the empty tomb and they point us to the resurrection. 
Now, there have been objections to the resurrection, and, and to be fair, I've presented the evidence. Let me present to you the counter evidence tonight. I'm going to present to you the, the four best counter evidences for the fact that people on the other side of the debate who claim that Jesus did not rise from the dead, I'm going to present them to you tonight, and I call on you to examine them. The first is that Jesus did not die on the cross, but that he swooned, that he passed out. That he didn't, that he didn't physically die, he, he just sort of went into a comatose state. John Stott, one of the great preachers, has this quote, and, and I want to quote it in full because he, he does such a thorough job of, of totally debunking this idea. He says this, can we really believe that after the rigors and pains of trial, mockery, flogging, and crucifixion, that Jesus could survive in a stone sepulcher with neither warmth nor food nor medical care, that he could rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting the boulder which secured the mouth of the tomb, to do so without disturbing the Roman guard. And can we really believe that he could appear then to the disciples in such a way as to give them the impression that he had vanquished death? Such credulity is more incredible than Thomas's unbelief. Listen, if Jesus didn't die but only swooned and passed out, he would have died in the grave because he couldn't have rolled that stone away. He was in such horror. I mean, the, the amount of blood loss that he suffered just from the flogging, just from the scourging. No human being could survive this. And even if he had and somehow rolled the stone away and went limping to the disciples, they wouldn't have said, hey, he's risen. They would have said, hey, get him to the hospital. It's an absurd idea. But many people believe it. The only way that Jesus could have deceived his, his professional executioners, the Roman executioners, would have been for him to stop breathing, which in and of itself, I don't know if you know this, it kills you, by the way. You stop breathing. Jesus didn't pass out. Jesus didn't swoon. Jesus died. The second argument against the resurrection is that Jesus did not rise from the dead, but that his body was stolen. His body was stolen. Many people believe this today, that his disciples stole the body. Well, for this to have happened, all of the Roman guards would have had to have fallen asleep at the same time, even though if they were caught sleeping, it would have cost them their lives. That's an expensive nap, okay? They would not have fallen asleep. Nevertheless, they would have had to have fallen asleep. They would have all had to stay asleep and not be awakened by the sound of breaking of the Roman seal that was on the tomb, rolling away of the enormous stone or carrying off the dead body. This idea is preposterous. However, what we have to ask is, what would be the disciples' motive for doing this? What would be the benefit 
Why would they have done this? There, there, was, there wasn't a, a vast amount of following for Jesus at the time he was killed. In fact, the whole world had turned on him. There was just a handful, his disciples, the 12 that still believed in him. What would have been their motivation? And then why would they die for this lie? You have to seriously consider this. They all died for the truth of the resurrection. Christianity wasn't a thing. Who would die for a lie? Who would die? All 12 of them died brutal and gruesome deaths and their blood still bear witness to us today that they did not steal that body, but that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. One of the other arguments that's made against the resurrection is that it was not Jesus on the cross, that he had a twin brother that nobody knew about or that they put, like, they put a, look, a look-alike on there. Someone that looked like him. Uh, the Muslims today, Islam teaches that it was Judas who was actually crucified on the cross. The problem with that is that Mary's own mother, uh, Jesus' own mother was there. Mary was there, weeping, watching her son die, talking to her son. The idea that Mary somehow mistook Judas for her son, I think, should be offensive to every mother who is in this place this evening. The twin brother or lookalike theory. And then finally, the the fourth counter evidence that people give is that Jesus' followers hallucinated the resurrection. They wanted it to happen so bad it was wishful thinking. But however, this is not the way hallucinations work. Hallucinations are, are private. I've never had one. Maybe you've had one. I've never had a hallucination. But hallucinations are, are not public events. Hallucinations are not shared experiences. If someone's having a hallucination, you're not in it with them. No, they had seen it with their own eyes. And in fact, Jesus had appeared to his disciples to multiple groups at multiple times. And at one point, he appeared to 500 people at once. This was not a hallucination. This was not wishful thinking. Over the course of 40 days, Jesus appeared to physically appeared to his disciples, risen from the dead. But then after 40 days, all of these supposed hallucinations just stopped at the same time for everyone everywhere. How convenient. And in fact, we have to be honest, and when you read the gospel accounts, what you find is that the resurrection wasn't even in the mind of the disciples to begin with. They were just as shocked as anybody else. So why do I believe in the resurrection? Because I, from examining the evidence, I don't think there is any other credible explanation for the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. That is historical fact. And for me, I believe that there is only one evidence that fits, one one event that fits the evidence, biblical, historical, and circumstantial. That is that Jesus on the third day rose again from the dead.
And so then the question is, well, what does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? It means that Jesus was who he said he was. God validated his son by raising him from the dead. He was who he said he was. He did what he came to do. The empty tomb is God the Father's stamp of approval on the work of the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that Jesus did as he said he would do, paid the price for sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us have suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness in our hearts. But the empty tomb screams to us, Jesus is who he said he was. That there is a creator in heaven who created the world. We're not simply the result of time and matter acting on chance and acting on time and matter. It's, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. No, there is a creator. And he sent his son into the world to redeem mankind. And that all who would believe in him, who would have faith in him, would receive the eternal life that Jesus promised Jesus, in the course of his life, made some incredible claims, some preposterous claims, if he was not who he said he was. He said he was the bread of life who had come down from heaven. He said he was the light of the world. He said he was the door of the sheep, the way into God's family. He said he was the good shepherd who would take care of the souls of his people. He said he was the resurrection and the life, and that whoever would believe in him Though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus said that he was the true vine, saying that he was the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. And Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus did not say he was a way. Jesus said that he was the way. This is the most exclusive claim in the history of the world and the empty tomb demands that we take it seriously. The empty tomb demands that we listen to Christ. God does not call on us to follow his son in blind faith, but he had provided for us the empty tomb, the evidence to examine. And the question that lies before all of us is will we believe the evidence that God has given to us or will we harden our hearts in unbelief. The empty tomb demands a response. The claims of Christ demand a response. You cannot afford to remain neutral. You cannot claim to be in the middle. The claims of Christ are too staggering. The matter is too serious. We must all consider the evidence seriously and either receive it as truth or reject it as a lie. But there is no middle ground. Jesus either was who he said he was, or he was the biggest liar the world has ever known and has committed the biggest lie and has deceived the world more than anyone has ever deceived the world. Jesus, either, who, Jesus is either the Son of God or he's the devil incarnate. That's it. Dispel of the notion that he was a good moral teacher. A good moral teacher doesn't say he's the son of God unless he's the son of God. You must decide. Choose you this day whom you will serve. 
What are you going to do with the empty tomb? This world is passing away. This world is fading away. God beckons us to be reconciled to him through the faith in his son and the work that he did on the cross, shedding his blood, paying the price for sin. The empty tomb tells us that the work that Jesus did, it worked. It was effectual. The father received the sacrifice. His blood was spilt to redeem our lives and that we can have forgiveness of sin and life eternal if we will believe upon Christ. The first time the gospel was ever preached was on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus rose, preached by Peter in the same city that Jesus died in, Jerusalem. And on that day, as Peter preached to the same crowds who had crucified Christ, when they heard this message, they had faith in Christ. 3,000 souls that day put their faith in Christ. And, and when they heard this message, it says that they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and they said to the apostles, what shall we do? We crucified the Son of God. We crucified our Messiah. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, the king of the universe. We crucified him. What can we do? Is there anything that we can do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We must put our faith in Christ and his work, not our own righteousness, which is as filthy rags, but in the righteousness of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God who went to the, to the cross, who paid the penalty and the price. We must put our faith in him. We must repent of our sin, our rebellion, our going our own way, our thinking. We figured it out on our own, our own righteousness. We must turn from that and turn to God in faith and then the first thing that we do, the way that we publicly declare our faith to the world is through baptism. Repent and be baptized.